0: So over the next four weeks, we're going to be kind of dwelling in just these two chapters of Matthew 26 and 27, um, where Matthew kind of offers us different angles, different perspectives on what takes place. And so we're going to be kind of looking at it through the perspective of different characters. Uh, In a few weeks, we'll be thinking of Pilate and Jesus, or sorry, Pilate and the cross. We'll be thinking of, next week, Peter and the cross. We'll be thinking of Jesus and the cross. But this morning, as you might have gathered, we'll be considering the story of Judas as it relates to the cross. And before we do that, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, uh, to you, all hearts are open. And because you see us, you know us, and you know what we need. And so we ask that you would give us what we need even right now, that as we together listen to your word, that you would show us what we need to see, that you would draw us to yourself, that you would change us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So recently I've come to acknowledge a sobering truth, and that is that I am middle-aged. It's kind of undeniable. I'm 46. I don't know any definition that would exclude me from middle-agedness, so I'm wrestling with that reality. And one of the things that I've come to start noticing about being at the stage of life that I am is that I'm beginning to kind of look at kind of younger versions of myself, remembering what I was and seeing things now in a way that makes me cringe. Um, I'm not just talking about like that awesome haircut that I thought was so awesome or the really questionable fashion taste I might have had in the 80s and 90s. I'm talking actually about stuff that's a little bit more uncomfortable, recognizing when I thought I was being so kind or selfless how actually arrogant or self-centered I was, recognizing that times that I thought I was being kind, there were times that I was actually being really controlling and, and even cruel. And it's, it's kind of painful to recognize those things, because obviously there's not much I can do about that anymore. I wonder if you know what that's like. Or sometimes, actually, I think we come to a similar realization not years later, but when we do something that suddenly kind of makes things clear, like we, we say an unkind word and we see the person's reaction and we suddenly realize, oh my goodness, I've just hurt them. Or, or Or sometimes the consequences of what we've done, we just realize, I have so utterly messed up and I can't undo it. What do we do with that? What do you do when you realize that you have been wrong, that you have done something wrong and you cannot undo it i believe the story of judas that we're looking at this morning poses that very question and helps us to answer it so back in matthew chapter 10 jesus uh, jesus appoints 12 apostles and we're given the names for the very first time and um, Eleven of them are from Galilee. At least it seems like that, based on their names and things we know about them. And, and one of them, is from the area of Judea, and that's Judas Iscariot. And just to kind of give you a sense of these two regions, when you think Galilee, think like the Appalachia area, like West Virginia. Think of, you know, largely blue-collar, lower income, perhaps less well-educated. Think of really thick sense, you know, fishermen and tradesmen. The, the wealthiest of that area would have been a tax collector. That is really, if you think about it, almost all of the apostles, including Jesus also as well. When you think of the Judea area, think of like the Acela Corridor, you know, from that area from like Boston to D.C., the more high-powered, high-income, high-educated people, more metropolitan. That, that is probably more what Judas was like. And so there's this time, apparently, that when Jesus was down in the southern area of Judea, he encountered Judas, or more importantly, Judas encountered Jesus and, and saw Jesus, for the first time, and saw him do things that no one else had ever done, him say things that no one else had ever said, and he found Jesus so utterly compelling that whatever he was doing before, he decided to stop and instead to follow Jesus. And I can only imagine that if this is Judas' story, and it sounds like it is, that when he joins this group, he finds himself amongst a bunch of rednecks and on one hand, it probably, he, he would have probably had a certain kind of air of superiority, but you can imagine that underneath that, there was an uncomfortableness, an awkwardness, an aloneness that probably he felt at times. But we do know that Jesus welcomed him because when he appoints the apostles, he appoints Judas as one of these leaders. There is a time, inevitably, that Jesus took Judas aside and said, I want you to be one of my twelve. And Judas accepted In fact, we're even told in the Gospel of John that he was given a very specific role. He was the treasurer, that when donations came in, he would hold on to them and he would measure out the amount that could cover the costs of of room and board in different situations. But of course, more than that, as an apostle, he had a very grueling, uh, life. Uh, he regularly would be sent out to a new town with another apostle, would kind of knock on doors, introduce himself. If they welcomed him in, he would share about Jesus. He would do miracles. He would heal. He would cast out demons. And then he would come back exhausted, and they would keep moving. And he would sit under Jesus' teaching day after day. And this was his life for months upon months upon months. I find it interesting that as we look at the Gospels, from the moment that he's mentioned in chapter 10, we do not hear him again until about a week before Jesus dies. In fact, none of the Gospels give us any information. There are no clues that they offer, no, no meaningful statements or actions that indicate what is about to happen with Judas. And I think that lack of information itself tells us something about, about Judas's remoteness from the other apostles. We can only imagine after all this is done, after Jesus has died and risen from the dead and ascended, how the apostles might have sat together and said, what happened with Judas? What happened? And they would have realized as they talked that none of them really knew Judas. But what what we do know, and and the four Gospels all point to the same thing, is that a turning point seems to have happened just about a week before Jesus' death. They're at Jesus' friend. They're eating dinner together, and unannounced, this woman comes in with this very expensive jar of perfume, and she breaks it open and pours it on Jesus' head as an act of worship. Something that Jesus says is beautiful, but the disciples, at least some of them, disagree. In fact, John tells us specifically, Judas is bothered by this waste. And so, being bothered by this, he makes a decision. He does not like seeing people give up wealth for Jesus. And so instead, he chooses to give up Jesus for wealth. Immediately after the story, it says, Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? When I come to this sentence, I was looking at commentators, every commentator is asking the same question, why? Why would Judas be doing this? And there is a certain degree of mystery where I think the writers of the Gospels don't fully understand, but I think Matthew and actually the Gospels in general want to point us to this connection between wealth and Judas's decision. It is after this extravagant use of wealth that Jesus Judas then seeks wealth. In fact, the Gospel of John gives us even more information that points us in this direction. It says that Judas, who's the treasurer, we're told that he was slowly embezzling the funds, taking some for himself. And I find that, that little detail actually quite significant if you think about it. So think of this. Judas has been sitting under Jesus' teaching week after week after week. He heard Jesus explicitly say, no one can be a slave to two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot be a slave to both God and wealth. And when Jesus is talking about being a slave to wealth, don't, don't think like Ebenezer Scrooge, this miser counting every penny. It's rarely about the money when people are slaves to wealth. It's about everything else. It's about a desire to be respected by others, and so we're We're wanting the the nicer clothes or the nicer car to get that respect. It's about the desire to feel safe. And we want enough in our account to make sure that's the case. It's about the desire to enjoy the good things of the world, and we need some funds to be able to support that. that. That is what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about being a slave to wealth. He's talking about the question of do we seek to have our best life right now, or do we trust God and his own timing? Do we seek treasures on earth, or are we pursuing treasures in heaven? Jesus says you cannot be a servant to both. But Judas certainly seems to try. Even as Jesus is warning against that, day after day, Judas is taking just a little bit off the top from the funds and sticking it in his pocket. And my guess is he's not even allowing himself to see the contradiction in this. As Jesus is speaking, he, he probably says, yeah, that's true, and thinks he's talking to some other people, but doesn't allow those words to penetrate and expose him. My guess is he never acknowledges to himself that he's even stealing. He just, he needs a higher lifestyle. He's from a different area. Jesus would understand, he probably says to himself, although, of course, he never actually tells Jesus about this. He keeps it hidden. In fact, he even keeps it hidden from himself. But this is the situation where he is is finding this desire to hold on to two masters until a point where it starts becoming clear that this tension is irresolvable. So when Judas started following Jesus, when he came to the conclusion that Jesus was the king, I think he saw Jesus as the way to get what he wanted. That Jesus, if you are the servant of the king, then when he comes into his kingship, you will experience your best life now. And that's what Judas thought he was going to get through Jesus. And then Jesus comes and ruins everything by telling people when everything is going well, you need to know that I'm heading to the cross. And, and you need to know that if you are with me, you are going to have to go to the cross with me. And in this moment, it becomes apparent to Judas that he has to make a choice. He cannot serve both masters. Will he pursue finding happiness in this life in the way that makes sense to him? Or will he decide that Jesus is enough? My guess is over the following weeks... He started to kind of grow in a sense of resentment towards Jesus. Why does Jesus keep on tweaking the nose of the powerful people? Couldn't he be more diplomatic? Why does he spend all the time with the lowly, the disreputable, the poor? Why does he keep on speaking about the difficulty of the life that he calls us to? But at a certain point, he comes to a breaking point when the perfume is poured over the head of Jesus and he realizes just how disinterested Jesus is in the wealth of this world, he's done. And so that night, or maybe the next day, as as Jesus is teaching in the temple, Judas just kind of steps away before anyone even notices what he's doing and he finds the religious leaders in a different section of the temple And maybe they're having a meeting and maybe when they see an apostle at first they feel hostile until Judas comes in and he says, What will you give me to betray Jesus? And after some period of negotiation, they come to a conclusion of 30 pieces of silver, which is around $10,000. Not a nothing sum, but it's still striking, isn't it, for someone who has given so much in following Jesus. Doesn't he recognize and remember that this is the one who has done all these miracles? Doesn't he see that this is the one who has said things that no one else has said? Doesn't he realize who he is betraying? But see, that's the thing. And we know this, don't we? When we're making a decision like this, you don't think. You don't look. You just zero in on what you want and you don't pay attention to anything else. All Judas wanted to notice at that moment was that life was going to get easier for him. That this was the way back to respectability with the leaders. This was the way to give a little bit of cushion in his finances. This was the way to stop the daily exhausting following. This was the way to get the treasures on earth that he wanted, and so he would not think about the treasures that he would give up. But we're told that Even as he has made this decision, there is one final moment for Judas to change course. It's now Passover, Thursday, and the disciples are all eating a meal together. You can imagine kind of a U-shaped table, and they're all reclining on one side, and on the left side of Jesus is John, on the right side is Judas. They're enjoying conversation, the whole group together, and then Jesus suddenly tells them, tonight one of you is going to betray me. And conversation stops. What's interesting to me is immediately after, every disciple asks, you're not talking about me, are you, Lord? As if they know that Jesus knows something about them, and they are feeling exposed in that moment. And Jesus responds, essentially reiterating what he was saying before, one of you who dips their hand in this bowl. All of them would have been sharing the bowl. So he's saying, one of you who is eating with me is about to betray me and woe to him, it would have been better had he never been born. And then after saying that, Judas says to him, surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And the answer is ambiguous. One translation, I think, effectively says, your word's not mine. The Gospel of John gives us another important detail. It says, right around that time, Jesus takes a piece of bread, and after dipping it, he actually hands it to Judas. It was a sign of friendship, a sign of love. And there is a sense in this moment that Jesus is giving Judas one final chance. He has warned Judas of the consequences. He is showing that he is a friend who loves Judas. In that moment, Judas could have broken down in tears. He could have shown the 30 pieces of silver. He could have said, I am not deserving your kindness, Lord. But he doesn't. He keeps his face straight, smiles, takes the bread as if they're friends. And then just a few moments later, he leaves. He, he goes over to the religious leaders, and for the first time in a while he feels in control He's able to give them important information about the garden that Jesus is going to be later on that night. He's able to come up with a plan for how to do things in such a way that the disciples won't realize what's happening until it's too late. He gathers this large group around him. He is getting ready for action, not realizing that the very same time Jesus is also getting ready in a very different way with his head pressed to the ground, tearfully praying, asking for God's strength. Later on, probably around 11 p.m., Judas comes with his small army. He sees Jesus and the disciples in the garden. The disciples see Judas and don't really understand what's happening. And, And Judas comes to Jesus and he kisses him. And I think what Jesus says next must have completely destabilized Judas. So, the ESV, I think I like the translation a little bit better here, he says friend why have you come? Friend it is an expression of kindness it is an expression of love and Jesus is looking at Judas eye to eye friend why have you And in that moment, things completely go out of control for Judas. The, the soldiers, knowing who Jesus is, take Jesus away. The disciples, terrified, after a little bit of a back and forth, they flee. And, and Judas is left to just kind of walk in in kind of the trail of these guards leading Jesus. And, and he watches, and he sees what he knew deep down was always going to be the case: that this isn't a trial. They've already decided what they're going to do to Jesus. He knows as he's watching that they are going to kill him. And he knows in this moment that Jesus was right when he said he was going to be crucified. And he's left to sit with those words. Friend, why have you come? And in that moment, the reality... Breaks through and the lies fall apart. Notice it says, When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. When Judas saw that he was condemned, when Judas recognized the reality of what was happening, when Judas saw that Jesus was going to the cross, The cross shone like this bright, piercing light, breaking through all of the nonsense and the lies and the trivializations, and Judas in that moment realized that he wasn't Judas the refined, he wasn't Judas the reasonable, he wasn't Judas the victim, he was Judas the betrayer of the Son of God. And he was overwhelmed by that realization. It felt like this enormous burden on his shoulders. He he was revulsed. He he wanted to throw up. He wanted to to hit something. He was filled with adrenaline, so he did the only thing that he could think of. And he ran right through the guards to the religious leaders, and he held out the money. And he says, we have done something wrong. I have sinned. I have betrayed innocent blood. And... And stepping back, we must ask, what was he seeking to do in that moment? There is no way that he thinks that somehow he could have stopped this whole process by that. No, I think he was doing something far less admirable. He was, he was trying to remove his guilt. He had a burden that was too heavy on his shoulders. He had a blood stain on his hands, and he wanted to cleanse himself of his sin. But he couldn't. I mean, what do the chief priests, they look at the money and say, what is this to us? That's your responsibility. And they're right. Yes, the chief priests have their own guilt, but Judas is the betrayer. And this is not the kind of thing you can undo. What do you do with that? What do you do... When you realize that you have been wrong, that you have done something wrong, something terribly wrong, and there is nothing you can do to undo it. As as the cross is exposing Judas, as he sees himself truly for the first time, he sees nothing that he possibly can do. And so he throws the money at them and he goes away And in his last moment of doing something that he can control, he takes his own life. Many months earlier, Jesus said that there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. And the cross showed that to be true for Judas. What Judas had hidden from himself what he had concealed from himself, the cross pierced through like a bright light and exposed his guilt and wickedness. And the reality is that if you and I look honestly and truthfully at the cross, it will do the same for us. Because the reality is you and I are a lot more like Judas than we care to admit those things about ourselves that we like least, our pride, our selfishness, our cruelty. We, we hide from our view. We, we excuse. We, we blame others. It's not my fault. We trivialize. It's, it's no big deal. We ignore. It's not true of me. But the reality is that we, like Judas, have a deep, deep issue with sin. And the truth is that every sinful choice that we make expresses a desire. In every expression of our sin, we are pursuing a certain state of affairs. When we choose to just ignore God's word, when we seek to live in a prayerless self-sufficiency rather than looking to God for help, when we are seeking treasures on earth rather than the treasures of heaven, we are rejecting God's claim for us. We are asking that God be dethroned. We, like Judas, are willing to hand over Jesus for momentary satisfaction. And in that sense, we are participants in the crucifixion of Christ. One hymn writer put it this way, Who was the guilty? Who brought this upon thee? Alas, my treason Jesus hath undone thee. Was I, Lord Jesus? I, it was, denied thee. I crucified thee. If we see the cross clearly, if we allow it to shine its light upon us, we will come to recognize that we are far more sinful and our sin is far weightier than we have ever let ourselves see. And what do we do with that? What do we do when we realize that we have been wrong, that we have done things that are terribly wrong, and there is nothing we can do about it? We look at the cross again. The tragedy of Judas is that he only saw one thing. He saw the light of the cross shining at him, but he didn't realize that the light of the cross was also shining upwards, showing something unfathomable about God, showing the love of God. Judas couldn't see it. Judas could not understand why Jesus would would spend time with the lowly and disreputable he couldn't understand why this woman would anoint jesus with wealth he couldn't have any place in his understanding for grace he didn't recognize it when jesus called him and said follow me he didn't recognize it when jesus gave him bread he didn't recognize when he jesus was saying that he was going to the cross that that wasn't a failure that, that was a victory. That he was going to the cross to save his friends. Judas could never understand that Jesus truly, deeply loved him. Can you? Do you? Do you understand that when we survey the wondrous cross, when we look at it, it does not just expose our own sin and our own failure, but it exposes a depth of love from God for us that we will never, ever understand. Because when Jesus went to the cross, he went there for us. Though we were those who betrayed him, he went there to make us friends. The same hymn that I quoted before, said, for me, kind Jesus, for me was thy incarnation, thy mortal sorrow, and thy life's oblation, thy death of anguish and thy bitter passion for my salvation. That's what we see. That it was for our salvation that we do, that he did this. What, what do we do with this reality? We turn to the one who loves us. We turn to the one who loves us and do what Judas never did and name those hidden things that we have sought to hide from God. Not to make us wretched, but to make us forgiven or experience forgiveness as we we name our sins before God and take hold of his promises that we might know how deeply we are loved and how deeply we are forgiven. I want to ask the musicians to come forward, and as they're doing that, I want to invite you just to take a moment and look at the printed confession that we are going to be confessing together. Here is an opportunity for us to come clean. There is nothing that is hidden from God, and here is our opportunity to bring it before God and name things so that we can also experience His grace and forgiveness.